2: Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone.
0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Joe McCormick, and today we are coming back with part two in our series on stickiness. This is a topic I got interested in after feeding my 10-month-old various fruits and fruit-based smoothies and stuff, and noticing the way that, that a kind of stealth stickiness can easily migrate outside of the uh, direct vicinity of eating and contaminate surfaces beyond. There's a, there's a kind of stickiness fallout effect after the initial meltdown. Uh, Rob, I think you said last time you've had similar experiences.
1: Oh, yes. And I'm, I'm still finding sticky spots in the house, you know. Uh, now, here's a question about your daughter. Has she used the stickiness to uh, scale walls yet?
0: No, she has not figured this out okay. yet. But. She's crafty, and I I think she could be getting there very soon. All right. (laughs) More on wall climbing in a bit. Yeah, the creature will not be contained. But uh, so in the last episode, we started off talking about difficulties in even defining stickiness rigorously. This is uh, one of those subjects where I expected there to be a pretty simple, straightforward, well-understood physics or chemistry answer to what makes things sticky. And it turns out, no, the answer is super (laughs) complex and in some ways not fully understood. And we'll be talking more about that some uh, at the beginning of today's episode. But in the last episode, we also discussed one of the most glorious of sticky foods glutinous rice aka sticky rice aka sweet rice the unstoppable amylopectin avalanche that's right
1: i hope if nothing else we inspired everyone out there to to seek out some sticky rice or sticky rice derived uh food products uh in wake of listening
0: did you have some sticky rice over the weekend after we did the episode
1: um I, I, I had some mochi and I really, I think I, okay. I, it enhanced my enjoyment of the mochi and I'm looking forward to having uh, sticky rice, the next opportunity I get.
0: Nice. Well, today we wanted to further explore the concept of stickiness. And one place I wanted to start was with a chapter in a book that I've been reading. Uh, It's a very good book called Sticky, The Secret Science of Surfaces by Laurie Winkless. This is a popular science book uh, from Bloomsbury 2023. So this is just recently published. And this book uh, is not just about stickiness; it's about all different kinds of surface interactions. So it covers slipperiness and friction and all that stuff too. But uh, there is a great chapter early in the book about stickiness. And this book is is full of interesting stuff about the world that I never thought of before. For example, in this chapter on uh, stickiness or adhesion, Winkless is talking about how oil based paints are made, uh, typically. So an oil-based paint is usually going to be a solid pigment of some kind, little colored particles that are suspended in a liquid medium uh, that might be something like linseed oil. And then it'll also have additives in it that will be things like stabilizers to help thicken the mixture and disperse the pigment particles evenly. But uh, the thing that really caught my attention is she gets to an interesting fact, which is when you use an oil-based paint, Maybe you're you're painting a painting on a canvas with some oil-based paint. What do you do when you're done painting? You let it dry. We say that it dries, but actually the paint does not dry. Drying would mean that it loses moisture through evaporation, but moisture does not leave the oil-based paint. Instead, what oil-based paints do is polymerize. Uh, This is sometimes called curing. So instead of losing water molecules to the air through evaporation – These paints steal oxygen from the air and use that oxygen to form bonds between molecules, which allows the paint to harden into a solid film and form these layers of hard solid films. And because oil-based paints remove oxygen from the air rather than drying by losing moisture, they actually get heavier, not lighter, as they cure. So Winkler says that paints based on linseed oil can sometimes increase their weight by over 15% during curing. Hmm. So a painting would be heavier after it's dry than when it was wet, uh, if, if you use one of these paints. Now, you can contrast this to water-based paints, which actually do dry by losing moisture, and these will leave behind only the solid pigments held in place by binder compounds. So when you buy a can of water-based paint, most of the volume of that can is not actually going to end up on your wall. It will instead uh, evaporate. And in illustrating this, uh, she writes, quote, Colin Gooch technical director of paint manufacturer uh, Racine told me that a four liter can of high quality waterborne paint might contain just over 1.5 liters of volume solids. That's what actually forms the film that stays on the surface. The job of the other 2.5 liters is to keep those solids dispersed. It allows us to carry the pigment from the can to the wall.
1: This is this is crazy. I'd never thought about this before either. It it makes me wonder if, if I were using oil-based paints in painting minis uh, uh, inst- instead of the uh, the acrylic paints that I use, like what what the, the, the difference would be, like like all the, you know, sort of the fine art of the thing. Do you have to factor that in um, to how much paint you're applying? I don't know. I'd uh, love to oh, hear yeah, from anyone out there with experience painting anything, um, you know, minis or canvases or houses.
0: Yeah, I haven't. The book doesn't get into how the uh, material, the differences in the materials affect the craft itself. uh, But I expect they probably do. Yeah. But anyway, coming to the more general topic uh, in the same chapter of what stickiness is, I I wanted to talk about some of the things that uh, Winkless explains here. And there are uh, two very important concepts for stickiness. One is adhesion and the other is cohesion. Adhesion is the attraction between two different materials. And it's defined usually by the work or the effort that it takes to separate the two materials. And then cohesion is the attraction of a material to itself, how the molecules of the substance, uh, how well they stay stuck together to each other. Hmm. Now, to discuss the different physical models of adhesion, how two different substances stick together, Winkless uh, starts by imagining a hypothetical interface between two different things. So you imagine a drop of some kind of liquid, some kind of adhesive liquid, sitting on top of a clean, flat block of solid material. So you can think of a drop of water sitting on a piece of wood or a piece of metal or a drop of whatever, of glue. You know, you're going to be measuring how well this thing adheres. And Coming back to the uh, the the level of uncertainty that I found surprising in this subject, she writes that the general consensus is that there are quote three or four ways that these materials could interact.
1: Yeah, this is a this is a familiar thread. It seems that one finds when you start researching um, stickiness uh, <laughs> is that yeah we don't necessarily know. On one hand, we might not necessarily know, like, the one thing uh, that is making something stick, and it may more honestly be various things, and there's disagreement on to what extent each thing is contributing to the stickiness.
0: That's right. So uh, the first one of these models of interaction for adherence is uh, chemical adherence, and this means... There's an actual chemical reaction. There are molecular bonds between the adhesive and the surface. So some kind of reaction has taken place, resulting in essentially a new compound where they meet. Uh, And Winkless here uses the example of paint. Quote, In paint, this sort of adhesion is enabled by the binder molecules that surround the pigment particles. So the pigment particles are the little solid uh, particles that give the paint its color. And then they have these binder molecules that that, uh, surround those pigment particles and help stick them to the surface. She says, quote, they react with molecules on the surface, sharing and borrowing electrons, effectively forming a new compound at the interface. So this is actual chemical interaction here second model of interaction is a uh, mechanical adhesion here there's not a chemical reaction going on between the adhesive and the surface instead uh, winkless uses the analogy that one sticks to the other like the way a rock climber clings to the surface of a cliff by like sticking fingers and toes into cracks and crevices in the rock mm-hmm. so the, the drop of the adhesive wants to stick to itself, of course. It wants to stay intact, much like the rock climber's body wants to stay intact and stick to itself. And parts of this adhesive are jammed into recesses in the surface of the solid material. Uh, now, you might think, well, okay, but what about smooth surfaces? And the fact is that basically all surfaces, even if they're pretty smooth as far as you can tell at the macro scale, they've got lots of little irregularities when you zoom in. If you, if you get a you know, high-sensitivity microscope, you can zoom in and see mountains and ravines on the micro scale. Most surfaces you will find in the real world are like this. Uh, third model of adhesion is diffusion. This typically happens when the solid material in the scenario is a polymer, for example, rubber or cellulose or nylon. Uh, there, there are lots of different kinds of polymers in the world. And structurally, polymers are long molecules with a repeating uh Structure, sort of like the links in a chain. In diffusion, these long chains can sort of intermingle and tangle with several nanometers of material on the other side, on the other object or the other substance, even though they're not reacting chemically. And uh, this might be a kind of crude analogy, but for a rough picture, just sort of like imagine uh, surfaces that have a bunch of chains and ropes and strings at the edge of them getting tangled up with the edge of the other object. Okay. Now, remember, she said there were three or four. This last one seems more debatable, but Winkless notes that the adhesive product manufacturer 3M Uh, also identifies a fourth possible type of adhesion, and this is electrostatic. Sometimes, if you are about to attach... A strip of adhesive tape to a piece of paper, you will see the paper actually kind of move through the air, like it's reaching out toward the tape. You know, they want to. You know, it wants to be found, uh, like the One Ring, and it's it's kind of like it's being attracted by a magnet because it sort of is. Uh, This is because the tape accumulates charged particles as you peel it off of the roll, and there is attraction due to static electricity there. Same reason, you know, you, you get static electricity on a balloon or something, and then you it, it lifts your hair off of your head.
1: Yeah, or occasionally in that scenario where there's some little bit of plastic garbage or packaging that you are trying to throw away, and it just clings to your hand, and you can't fling it away, even though there's obviously nothing sticky on your hands. You weren't just messing around with glue. You haven't, uh, you know, you've washed your hands, but yeah, it's sticking to you because of the static.
0: So that is a real force, but Winkler says that she doubts whether this should really be considered a true adhesive force that, like, meaningfully sticks objects together. Because while it might cause an initial attraction, this is not really what would, like, hold a, you know, an adhesive tape firmly to the paper, what prevents it from peeling off. Mm. But it's important to note, uh, she says, that no single one of these forces fully explains stickiness. And she writes, quote, for any given adhesive product, it's almost impossible to determine exactly which model or models might be operating.
1: (laughs) Hmm. That's that's interesting to just even to think of in in terms of, of hobbyist, you know, because there's so many different types of glues and you get into any given hobby, you might think, well, all glues are the same. But of course... They're most certainly not, you know, some expand, some don't, Um, you know, uh, some uh, uh, are more about like essentially melting one bit of plastic into another. Um, So, yeah, it's I guess the, the thing we keep running up against is like everything involving stickiness. There's like this level of language you have to get past as well as sort of the level of human perspective. You know, like we're just we're just too big. We're not on the same level where all of this is actually taking place.
0: Yes. And I think also when we think about it, we're usually thinking, we're trying to think too simply. We think about it in one direction. We think like, why does X stick to Y? Like, why does duct tape stick to the wall? And we think that there would be one answer for that. There is one cause. But it might be better to think about uh, stickiness as an emergent system that relies on many different things interacting rather than a property one thing does to another.
1: Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to AstaproAllergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O Allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion,
0: runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name.
2: Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
0: Now, remember, all of everything I've been saying so far was about adhesion, how two different materials cling to each other. Another important factor in stickiness is cohesion, the tendency of a material to stick to itself. Uh, So in order for a sticky material like paint to work the way that it's supposed to, it has to be both adhesive, meaning it sticks to the wall, and cohesive, meaning it sticks to itself. If either of these properties fails, then it's not going to be good paint. Another interesting factor that Winkless discusses in this chapter is what's known as surface energy. So uh, when you come back to that image, of you put a drop of some kind of liquid, some adhesive liquid sitting on a flat, solid surface. The nature of the solid material that the liquid is sitting on also influences how well the adhesive sticks. And one of the characteristics that matters is that solid material's surface energy. So technically, the surface energy of a material is the extra energy present at the outside of a solid mass compared to the energy present inside the mass. And this extra energy is there because of imbalances of molecular bonds on the surface of the object. But uh, for a more intuitive um, understanding of surface energy, you can think about it basically as equivalent to wettability. Usually, you can predict how well an adhesive will stick to a surface by looking at how easily the surface gets wet, how well it attracts water. And a common test uh, used to measure surface energy is to look at what's known as the contact angle of a drop of water on the surface of the material. Now, that might sound kind of abstract, but it's actually, when when you see it uh, illustrated, it's pretty easy to understand So, uh, imagine you put a drop of water flat on a solid surface, and it can be anything. It could be wood, metal, cardboard, whatever. Watch what the water does. Does it spread out and form a wide, flat disk or kind of a lens shape? Or does it stand up a little bit taller and form kind of a flat bottomed hemisphere? Or does it sit way high up in almost kind of a full sphere or bead shape? The first one I talked about, the wide, flat, lens of water is what's uh, or has what's known as a low contact angle. If you measure the angle between the water droplet and the flat surface, it's going to be pretty narrow, uh, well below 90 degrees. A low contact angle means that this surface likes water. It attracts water and it has a high surface energy. And you can kind of see that because the water is like spreading out. It's the water wants to touch the surface. Meanwhile, the bead of water that sits almost like a sphere or a ball up on the surface has a very high contact angle. It minimizes contact with the solid. And this indicates that the solid has a low surface energy and it's a substance that wants to fight off wet. It wicks away the moisture. So you might think of like a uh, think of like a waxy leaf, you know, where that you see water hit it and it just rolls right away. It's like the what you know, it it almost seems like it's impossible for it to get wet. Hmm. In most cases, this quality, the surface energy correlates with stickiness. Surfaces with a high energy that attract water and uh, and form that flat disk shape are also usually easier to stick things to. And Winkless writes, this is kind of interesting, surface energy also tends to correlate with the coefficient of friction. It's not a hard and fast rule by any means, but if a material has low surface energy, if it's slippery to liquids, it is often also low friction, slippery to solids. So I, I thought that's kind of interesting. As she says, it's, it doesn't hold in every single case, but generally, the easier it is to kind of like sm- slide smoothly over something without mm-hmm. rubbing or sticking to it, also that surface that you're sliding over is going to be harder to like stick sticky things to. Hmm. But also on the subject of surface energy, uh, this coming back to what we were talking about earlier, I, I was really not expecting a book chapter about the science of stickiness and adhesion to to contain much controversy. But, Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, you know, again, this just feels like one of those topics that you would find already pretty much settled and more just kind of standardized textbook explanations, like we all know how this works. But uh, once again, this topic still does contain a lot of mystery and room for disagreement. And one of those areas of disagreement uh, that Winkless documents is disagreements between material scientists and chemists about how important surface energy actually is when you're making things like glues or adhesives that are supposed to hold together two different solid materials. Uh, So she cites a professor named Stephen Abbott, who is a fellow with the Royal Society of Chemistry, who argues that, and these are Abbott's words, quote, surface energy is undoubtedly useful for paint. But for practical adhesive systems, where we're actually sticking stuff together, it's basically irrelevant. Thousands of times too small to give us what we need, and yet people are obsessed with it. <laughs> so he seems almost mildly uh, annoyed by this. Maybe I'm reading <laughs> too much tone into that. But either way, I thought it was fascinating that this topic is uh, has so many more questions within it than than I realized. Like, and the fact that we have. Lots of adhesive products that work pretty well, like, you know, there are companies that make Mm -hmm. tapes and glues and sticky notes and all kinds of things. They stick to one another pretty effectively. And we know at least some and maybe all of the underlying mechanisms by which these uh, by which these products work and they do work. And yet you still can't say in every case which mechanism or mechanisms are making the difference. And part of this is because stickiness is not merely a property of one material, but as we were saying, an interaction between two or more materials and the conditions under which they interact. And uh, at the uh, later on in this chapter, Winkless quotes the the same uh, researcher, Stephen Abbott, saying, quote, adhesion is a property of the system. It's not a property of like the individual substance but it's all these things interacting together they have uh, adhesive behavior as a whole or not
1: mm, yeah I think that's key that's key to keep in mind and it's it it also factors into what I'm about to discuss here in a minute because originally the plan was that I thought well we'll roll through a few different animal examples of which ones are sticky and why are they sticky um, foolishly thinking again that, Oh, well, we must have had, have this settled. It must be settled how this particular animal sticks to a wall, um, and we do know a lot <laughs> about this topic, uh, but it's maybe not as perfect of knowledge as as one might expect. And. And on, and I, I do have to, you know, to admit that of course this is the case with plenty of plenty of other things about animals that we are even very familiar with. I mean, even a house cat has its secrets. Uh, there are things about house cat behavior that we have varying uh, ideas about, and we haven't completely worked out. Uh, but yeah, with, with stickiness, uh, it, it's easy just to again to completely take it for granted. To approach it from our, uh, you know, look at it through the uh, the fog of of our scale and our language and think, oh, yeah, well, it, it just sticks, right?
0: It's like, um, you know, it's it's like a suction cup. Well, speaking of suction cups, that brings up an interesting thing, which is that on the macroscopic scale, you can get sticking forces that have nothing to do with any of the stuff we've been talking about so far because we were just talking about, like, surfaces sticking to one another due to properties of the surfaces but in the case of a suction cup like if you want to stick a suction Mm -hmm. cup to a window and climb a skyscraper like Tom Cruise in one of those uh, Mission Impossible movies That's a totally different mechanism. What's going on there is the suction cup by uh, evacuating the air from the space between the cup and the smooth surface. You are creating a low pressure area inside, which allows the atmosphere to press on the outside of the cup and hold it against the wall. So when Tom Cruise is doing that, what he's really doing is letting the atmosphere, the weight of the atmosphere, press his handholds against the building.
1: Is Tom Cruise still climbing up buildings with the, the suction cups? Is that still happening in the, the current
0: movies? Yeah, he, I think he was in the most recent one of them okay. I saw.
1: Maybe that's the one. I, I can't remember if he did that in. I think I only saw the first Mission Impossible movie. And I, if you told me oh, that he wow. used suction cups, I would just assume, well, I guess he probably used them. It seems like the sort of thing he would do.
0: I think in the first one, he uses magnets uh, because that's when he's on the the top of that train, you know? Oh, no, it's
1: I him don't Him and remember John that.
0: Voight. And they're like okay. fighting for a helicopter <laughs> on top of a train.
1: I remember John Voight, and, and don't they lower him into lasers? Is that the movie with lowering into lasers? Lower him into lasers. Yeah,
0: I don't like remember that
1: room full of like laser trip wires, and they have to like hit, he low what comes down from the ceiling.
0: Oh, oh, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, the, the yeah the first one is where they put Tom Cruise on a rope, and they lower him down through uh, out of an air vent into a room that the floor is lava you can't touch the floor or the alarms mm-hmm. will go off and that was so he could steal the knock list you know okay. the knock list i had a vhs of the first <laughs> <session> of <possible laughs> <knock> yeah
1: <days. laughs> i guess i only saw it once and yeah I, uh, I, I, I don't have any strong feelings about it one way or the other but i mean i admire um i admire the the, the commitment to amazing stunts
0: uh, apart from like the coronal mass ejection of star power that is Tom Cruise, most of those movies have a have a pretty cool supporting cast. Oh, even yeah, the yeah. first one it had um and, uh, Ving Rhames and John Renault. Yeah, yeah, I believe you're right. Yeah, yeah, strong cast. All right. Well, speaking
1: of star power and speaking of daring stunts, uh, the the main creature we're going to talk about here today is going to be the gecko. Um, I'm also gonna get a little bit into Spider-Man later, but Spider-Man's not real. The gecko is real and the gecko is, is quite amazing. One of the most famous sticky animals of all, uh, though to be clear, not all geckos have this ability. For instance, the um, oft-domesticated leopard gecko, uh, there's actually one of these living in my house, it's my, my son's pet, um, is a ground-dwelling lizard and does not have this ability. But geckos are found on every continent except uh, Antarctica, uh, various species of the infra-order geckota. Of these, some 60% have adhesive toe pads that enable climbing, although this ability has apparently been lost and gained many times over their evolution.
0: Now, when you hear that a gecko has adhesive toe pads— uh, First of all, that might make sense because you've probably seen a gecko climbing up a, a flat surface like a you know a window pane or a or a sliding door or the wall of a building or a tree trunk or even climbing on the underside of things. Uh, again, much like Tom Cruise kind of doing overhang uh, mm-hmm. free climbs, uh, going around on the ceiling. It is pretty amazing what they're able to do and across the, the range of surfaces across which they're able to do it. So you might just assume, OK, well, they got the, they got. You know, toes that feel like glue, like if you were to go put your hand on a gecko's toe, it would be a gross, sticky you know, almost kind of like a like a sugar syrup or something like that. But no, no, that's not the case. If you go and look at the toe and feel the toe of a gecko, the kind that has these amazing climbing powers and clinging powers, it feels totally smooth. It It is not covered in a sticky adhesive like the back of duct tape.
1: Yeah, it's one of the things that's long fascinated us about the gecko. Uh, and again, geckos are widespread, so they've been they're they're around for great thinkers of different ages to potentially ponder them. And uh, in fact, uh, Aristotle mentions them in the History of Animals, uh, the fourth century BCE text. If you if you start look, searching around in that text for mentions of the gecko, they do come up several times. Um, Uh, But uh, he also writes of the amazing climbing ability of the, quote unquote, gecko lizard uh, to, quote, run up and down a tree in any way, even with the head downwards. Uh, So even Aristotle thought that this was pretty interesting, uh, though I don't believe he offers any possible explanation for it. It's just kind of an observation about, you know, I think he's comparing it to another creature here.
0: The quest to understand how gecko toes cling to all these different surfaces and allow it to walk straight up vertical uh, walls of any roughness or smoothness, to cling to ceilings and overhangs, this goes way, way back. And people have put forward tons of hypotheses over the years. Uh, Again, coming back to our our Mission Impossible digression was due to talking about suction cup climbing. And for a long time, uh, a lot of people thought that the geckos did climb by essentially using suction suction cup grips, but that's not the case. Yeah, at different
1: points, uh, the, you know, hypotheses included sticky secretions, like we've mentioned, suction cups, also tiny hooks. You know, these are all decent hypotheses to work with, Uh, but it it didn't take too long for various naturalists and ultimately scientists and thinkers in general to realize, well, none of these are really explaining it. Something else is going on. Um, And it seems like it's something maybe more, you know, more physical, certainly, than chemical. Um, but once again, like it's our, our perspective and our language kind of get in the way of like simple understanding of what the gecko is doing. And I find I, my experience with researching this, it was kind of like, um, like a powers of 10 sort of experience of zooming in, you know, Yes. because you start out with like a simple question, well, why can geckos climb walls? And the answer is, well, because they have special flexible adhesive ridges on their toes. And if you wanted, you could stop there and be like, okay, question answered, I can go home now. Uh, yeah, but, toes are sticky. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then you might ask the follow-up question, well, how do their adhesive toes work? Well, the answer is the toes have special tiny hairs, like even you know, far smaller than what we think of as hairs, called setae uh, on them. And then you might say, okay, I got it. I can go home now. That's what's doing it. Um, but well, that's not the wait.
0: Yeah. How are the tiny hairs? What do the tiny hairs do? Or how Are they sticky? How do they stick?
1: Well, each of these has even smaller bristles called spatulae on them.
0: Right. So one way I've seen this described is all these tiny little hairs, if you can zoom way, way in, like smaller mm-hmm. on a scale, smaller than you can see with visible light. You have to use like a scanning electron microscope. You can see that each hair like frays like a rope that just goes out to like millions of little fibers that are Beyond microscopic, they're down on the nano scale. They're super, super tiny, frayed out to uncountable ends.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's so many that a, a given gecko I, I've read have somewhere in the neighborhood of two billion of these on their the the pads of their their toes combined.
0: Okay, so on their toes they have these uh, ridges. They, the ridges, by the way, are called lamellae, and then on the lamellae they have the the citae and the setae are little hairs, and those hairs fray out into these little frayed, bristly ends called spatulae. But what do the spatulae do? What are those? How do they work? Well, the answer
1: here is well, it's complicated. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the the basic idea is that their stickiness seems to depend on a combination of intermolecular forces.
0: Yeah, it does seem like there are maybe multiple forces involved. Though uh, the sources I was looking at zeroed in on the most agreed upon explanation having to do with what are known as van der Waals forces
1: yes van der Waals force named for Johannes Diedrich van der Waals who lived 1837 through 1923 um, there's an excellent 2002 article by Ben Schaus, um, that uh, that that I that I one of the sources I turned to for for this section it was uh, you can find on science.org has the just perfect title how geckos stick under walls, the uh, W A A L S uh, spelling for walls. Um, so, yes, that as of uh, 2002, as discussed in this article, like that is the primary hypothesis for how the geckos' toe pads are, are ultimately sticking to the wall. But another one that was being looked at at this time in an article I'm going to uh, cite here is this idea that it could have been water-based capillary forces. Um, So like a thin film of water between pads and the climbing surface. Uh, Quote, because water molecules are polar, their electrical charges are unevenly distributed, they might stick to some polar molecule in gecko's
0: feet. Oh, okay. Now, on the opposite side of that, what I've been reading about geckos' feet is that they seem to be composed largely of water-repelling, hydrophobic materials, but that, again, I think it's complicated.
1: Yes, yeah. Now, to come back to to, to Van der Waals here, um, science writer Eleanor Nelson uh, put together a great explainer on this whole topic for TED-Ed several years ago. Uh, you can look this up. There's a video on TED-Ed about the gecko. Just search for TED-Ed gecko, and you can watch it, it as great visuals to help explain all this. But um, she stresses that what we're talking about here isn't attraction between charged molecules, positive or negative, but rather attractiveness between uncharged molecules that experience patches of negative and positive charges due to the movement of atoms with different electronegativities in the same molecule. So we're talking about flickering patches of weak attraction, It's not strong in isolation, like each of those, you know, tiny spatula are are not, you know, pulling things across the room or anything remotely like that. Uh, But when you have two billion of these on a single gecko exploiting the force, it adds up. In fact, it adds up so much that a gecko can hang by a single digit, um, you know, from from like a, a ceiling, you know. And it has complete control over this as well. So, you know, because they can manipulate the angle and surface area of those toe ridges in just the right way to activate and release that stickiness on demand.
0: Yeah, it is amazing, especially when you. notice like the motor activities that the gecko has to coordinate to orient these little hairs correctly to always cling the right way. Uh, But I wanted to clarify one thing because it took me a minute to understand what was going on with the Mm -hmm. Van der Waals forces. The Van der Waals or Van der Waals forces are something that is different from like the attraction you get in a polar molecule like water, which is permanently polarized in terms of a charge. So it's mm-hmm. always going to be able to attract one way or another because it's got a you know negative charge on one side, positive on the other. The van der Waals forces are, yeah, they're uh, due to the fluctuations in the orientation of electrons around an atom that are just random. So they just randomly change over time, even when an atom is electrically stable. So this atom is not polarized, but things just sort of flicker in and out of existence. A charge attraction going one way or the other flickers in and out of existence because of just random fluctuations of where the where the electrons are lined up. And that, in cases where where atoms are packed close enough together, can actually have an attractive effect. But usually atoms are not packed close enough to, together for that to matter.
1: Yeah, and this is, if you're still... Foggy on this, uh, I do recommend that TED Ed video because they have a nice uh, animation that kind of, that illustrates what's going on here, and like at least for me, it helped clarify the whole thing.
0: Yeah, and so the reason the spatuli are able to take advantage of the van force is because they're so tiny and there's so many of them,
1: forests of them. I've seen it uh,
0: <laughs> described. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible.
2: or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603
0: for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love...
1: All right. So coming back to the 2002 um, uh, time period here, there was a paper that came out um, in a 2002 edition of Integrative and Comparative Biology titled Mechanisms of Adhesion in Geckos. This was by um, uh, Keller Autumn et al., and in this, they were exploring the Vanderwall and the water-based capillary forces explanations to see, you know, see. Well, okay, well, let's let's look at these two possible ideas and see which one seems to uh, seem, seems more evident uh, when put to the test. And they used the aid of semiconductors, so they ruled out water droplet hypothesis. Uh, as it depends on polar surfaces, they found in their experiments that geckos could equally climb a nonpolar surface. In this experiment, they used a semiconductor called gallium arsenide, which is a compound of gallium and arsenic. Mm -hmm. By the way, uh, it is also interesting that gecko feet cannot adhere to Teflon. Um, You you may have heard this or seen some... um, headlines about this over the years. But uh, according to uh, Sarah Chodash on Popular Science back in 2018, this the Teflon disrupts the Van der Waals force uh, effect here that enables them to climb other uh, or seems to be that one of, if not the primary factors in their ability to climb other surfaces. Quote, Van der Waals forces depend on being able to induce a positive and negative end of a molecule or atom. But the layer of fluorines and Teflon just have this permanent negative charge to them. The electrons stay in one place.
0: Teflon's not having any of it.
1: Yeah. So anyway, that 2002 study backs up the Van der Waals explanation Uh, in their own words. Their findings at the time provided, quote, direct evidence that Van der Waals forces, the mechanism of adhesion in gecko, um, citae, and that water-based capillary forces are not significant. So again, not to say it couldn't be doing something, but it's not the significant factor.
0: Yes, though, it's interesting in uh, the chapter in Winkless's book on gecko toes, uh, she talks about how, you know, it seems like most researchers in this area kind of agree, yeah, it's Van der Waal's force. That's that's the the explanation or the main explanation. But she says they all kind of have this bit of hesitation when they talk about it. Like, maybe there's something else going on, too, that we haven't fully figured out yet.
1: Yeah, I, I, I kept thinking about, like... The experience of trying a, like a fancy cocktail somewhere, and you're trying to pick out the ingredients just on taste. You know, generally mm. you can you can pick out some of the major flavors, but are, are you going to you know absolutely put your money down that there are only three ingredients in this cocktail, and you're, you're and there are not four, there are not five, and so forth.
0: That's right. What's that tingling in the back of your mouth? Is could that be an absinthe rinse? <laughs>
1: So uh, one example of this concerning uh, gecko feet. Uh, this comes up in a 2014 article um, that I was looking at, Role of Contact Electrification and Electrostatic Interactions in Gecko Adhesion by Azadi et al. published in the Journal of the Royal Society Interface. Um, And this one discusses the CE-driven electrostatic interaction. This refers to the contact electrification phenomenon. And uh, I understand that this is still controversial. Uh, For example, in a 2023 paper by Song et al. published in the journal Friction, the authors cite the controversial aspect of the CE-driven explanation. Though to be clear, it's ultimately more about the level of contribution that's controversial. Because again, Mm -hmm. it's like saying, well... Yes, I think I think there's absinthe in this cocktail, but uh, maybe it's just a drop. It's like three drops of absinthe. I'm not saying it's it's anything more than that. Um, mm. Whereas there might be someone else arguing. Actually, I think they put an ounce in there, and then there's you know fighting and controversy. Uh, but anyway, in this uh, song at all, paper uh, the the way they explain it, um, it's it seems like. Like CE may be part of the situation, but their study suggests that its impact is low, perhaps contributing only around 3% of the adhesiveness. And this may also be why it doesn't help them out with something like Teflon, which, again, essentially cancels out Van der Waal's force, which, as far as we can tell, seems to be the primary factor in play here. However, they note that, quote, long-range electrostatic forces may play other roles in a distance range where the Van der Waals interaction cannot function. So again, it could there could be certain situations where it's more important to some degree than other times.
0: But it does seem clear that whatever else is going on, the main ingredient, the whiskey and the cocktail, is the Van der Waals interaction. Yes. And it, another interesting thing here, uh, Rob, you alluded to this earlier, but it, uh, it's something that... You can notice if you watch a gecko actually climbing, which is the question of, wait, how do they make their toes stick and then unstick? So they've got this really powerful sticking force. And in some cases, uh, the, the, the sticking force, it can hold so much more than the weight of a gecko's body. There's one estimate in Winkless's book about a test showing that a gecko, I can't remember, I didn't write down the number, but it's like a a gecko's grip could hold hundreds of pounds uh, up on the wall, despite the fact that the gecko itself only weighs like half a pound. Mm. Now, on one hand, you might think, well, that's kind of overkill, but of course, that would be testing it in sort of ideal conditions in a lab, whereas in nature, a lot of times the surfaces it's climbing on are going to be dirty, which will reduce the adhesive potential, uh, might be wet, which would potentially reduce adhesive potential. Some of their toes might be injured or something. Some uh, some of the lamellae might come off in nature. So, you know, it's, it's better safe than sorry when you're a gecko. Have a, have a lot of sticking power. Hmm. But yeah anyway the question is how does it stick and unstick and climb in different directions and a lot of this comes down to how it lifts and attaches its toes to the surface and how it orients them so like you if you watch a gecko crawling up a wall, it will tend to uh, sort of like peel its, uh, peel its toes up and then lay them down with all of the toes facing upward on the wall. But if you see a gecko climbing down a wall, it will rotate its back feet so that its toes are facing up because the, the uh, citae the, and the spatulae on them, they sort of only grip effectively when laying in one direction.
1: Yeah. One way to think about all this is that, again, our understanding of what's going on when a gecko climbs uh, has not reached a level of perfection, but their exploitation of it has reached perfection. Like they are, they are the, the perfect manipulators of, uh, of this force. So it's, uh, it's, it's pretty amazing to
0: watch. Now, whenever evolution achieves something this ingenious, you will bet that human engineers come running to see how are they, how is, how are they doing that? What's going on there? Could I make robots that could do something like that?
1: Yeah, yeah. So of course. Uh Biomimicry has uh, has gazed longingly at the gecko uh, for a while now. Uh, there have been various efforts to create artificial CT with some working prototypes in robotics and even human climbing suits uh, popping up in, in headlines. I think there was a DARPA project that made the news in 2014. Um, these have certainly not reached a level of perfection yet. Um but, uh, you know, there are some interesting applications out there potentially for this, and they're, not all of them involve, like, super soldiers climbing the windshield or, uh, or robots cleaning, um, you know, high-rise buildings. Uh, for instance, it's been uh, put forward that they could be used in low-gravity environments. They could even be used, uh, you know, to collect space debris in orbit, that sort of thing.
0: So the amount of weight that can be supported by a gecko's toes and the range over uh, the range of different surfaces that they can crawl over is truly astounding and sort of a superlative in nature. But there are lots of other animals that can crawl up walls. And I wonder, do many of them make use of, of similar uh, mechanisms or forces?
1: Well, uh, spiders climb in a similar way and also depend on tiny sea teeth that make use of van der Waals' force. Uh, though they're ultimately like masters of these structures they also use them for other purposes as well like like sensing um sense sounds vibrations and air currents um but this does lead us back to the topic of spider-man mm. because as everyone knows spider-man can do whatever a spider can uh, and it's, <laughs> it's
0: <laughs> this is, he can liquefy your innards and, and slurp <laughs> them out through his mouth orifice.
1: Uh, he, maybe he can and he chooses not to, but um, I guess that's more of a... Isn't there a man... There's a man-spider. know there's a Batman and a man-bat. There's also yes. like a Spider-Man monster creature, but I don't know if that's man-spider or not off the top of my head. But it gets, it gets so complicated when you start comparing Spider-Man to spiders because, of course, there are all these things that don't match up. For example... It's easy to think of Spider Man. What does Spider Man do? Well, he swings around on webbing through the uh, through the streets. Um, though he does so in a way that's not particularly Spider esque. And while in some adaptations of Spider Man, he's using uh, like organic, uh, like mutations, like he has, like he's you know he's bitten by a radioactive spider and now he can he can shoot webbing out of his wrists. Most versions of spider-man you encounter he has these little gadgets that he built that shoot some sort of nylon like webbing so he's this weird mix of like okay i'm part spider but also i have like super crazy sci-fi weapons as well and all of these combine to make me able to do whatever a spider can
0: it's not really satisfying that way, is it? He's one foot in each world. He's half a Charles B. Griffith script where, yes, it was atomic radiation, but he's half Batman, and we already have Batman. He's He makes gadgets.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm not a Spider-Man purist or anything, but I, I like the the, the the mutant version. I like the idea that he's shooting it out of his wrist, even though that doesn't really match up. Like, spiders don't... don't They have spinnerets. They don't have wrist openings uh, or whatever. So, um, you know, it's, it's still... Not one-to-one, I guess.
0: Spider-Man fans, please don't hate me. I'm just joking around. I, I don't know much about Spider-Man.
1: This, I means Spider-Man's great. But um, one of Spider-Man's abilities that is or seems to be universally accepted as an ability brought on by the radioactive spider bite is his ability to climb walls and stick to ceilings without the aid of his webbing. How does he do this? Well, um, I... <laughs> On one hand, I, we have to admit, like, this is a fool's errand to try and make sense of this. Spider-Man climbs walls because he's Spider-Man. And and any kind of, like, scientific explanation to this comes after the fact. Uh, they were not, you know, thinking long and hard about the anatomy of a spider when they came up with this character. As fun as this character is, um, so any attempt to scientifically explain everything about him is is It can be very fun, but it's not going to get you to a place of of, uh, absolute certainty.
0: You might as well ask, uh, exactly scientifically, how do the crabs in Attack of the Crab Monsters eat your brains and gain your knowledge? (laughs) Exactly.
1: But like I say, it's a fun exercise, and I've been enjoying this book, Marvel Anatomy, by uh, Sumerak and Wallace. And uh, the authors point out several things about Spider-Man's adhesive abilities and how they match up or don't match up with the natural world. One of the main issues that that they keep talking about though is okay, Spider-Man can climb, and perhaps he does this because he has a little CD on his um, hands at least, or I guess over his entire body, and it allows him to adhere to walls. But also he's wearing a full-body costume. Uh, mm-hmm. Spider-Man is is almost never naked when he's clinging to walls and so forth. So it raises questions like, would Vanderwalls work through a pair of spider gloves?
0: Um, or would that weaken it to some degree? I don't think it would work, because the whole thing about Vanderval's forces is you've got to be incredibly close, closer than solids can usually get to each other. That's mm. like that's why the gecko's foot works. It's the, the tiny little things can get in there in the cracks and crevices in the surface unlike anything else.
1: Well, the author suggests that well maybe the CD poke through the costume (laughs) but that raises all sorts of questions like then when he takes the costume off when he peels off the sweaty spider-man costume at the end of the day does it just rip them all off and he has to regrow them or i don't know it's a wonder fabric that uh, iron man made for him so it 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 lets them out i don't know (laughs) like again it just raises more questions uh uh than anything
0: i think spider-man should have finger gloves like a like a bandit
1: The authors here suggest that maybe Spider-Man can actually, quote, consciously control the interatomic attraction between molecular boundary layers, which I suppose sounds reasonable, though, uh, I mean, this raises the question about to what extent this still makes sense as a 60s comic book radiation advancement of natural world spider abilities. Uh, But uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it.
0: Sounds good to me.
1: Now, they do point out that another character, Spider-Woman, I don't know if you're familiar with Spider-Woman. She was introduced in 1977. Um, she has kind of like a red outfit. Uh, but mm. it, she is said to be able to climb via uh, secreted biological adhesive substances that uh, are, are on her hands and her feet that, uh, I guess, swiftly penetrate tiny pores in the climbing surface. Uh, also, she wears gloves and booties as well. So this secretion would have to like rapidly soak through the the fabric in these cases as well or through the booties and then allow her to stick to the walls. Uh, and again, this raises more questions because when you look to the natural world, you do see adhesive secretions in some organisms, but they tend to be defensive rather than climbing aids. These are things that you would extrude when threatened so that whatever was trying to eat, you might decide, oh, I don't want any of this.
0: Yeah. Well, maybe I'm not thinking creatively enough, but it seems like if you had to secrete enough sticky stuff to hold you to a wall every time you wanted to climb, that'd just be a lot of stuff. That sounds like you're secreting. Like, do you get dehydrated? Do you run out of energy doing that? Well, I mean, Spider-Man
1: is leaving nylon threads all over the city, all over New York as he's fighting crime. And I guess somebody has to clean that up. Uh, they probably didn't think about it much in the the 60s, and I guess it was acceptable in the 80s. But nowadays, like, it's, what's the <laughs> what's the environmental impact of this crime fighting?
0: But once again, the genius of the gecko. The gecko climbs without goop.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah. And. The authors uh, here, they do include a bit on one of Spider-Man's many uh, enemies. You've perhaps heard of the lizard. I think the lizard was in at least one of the movies. I can't remember which Spider-Man this was, which Spider-Man uh, regime. Uh, but this is a man, a scientist who turns into a great big green lizard and chases Spider-Man around. And in many of the depictions, the lizard can climb around on walls and on the ceiling and um, in this particular book that i was referring to they discuss it as more of a claw thing which i think makes sense for a supervillain you know big nasty claws can you know they claw into the the concrete as, as, as the creatures climbing around but i've also seen some descriptions that discuss the lizard as having gecko abilities
0: oh okay so either way, claw or gecko, that would be Sans goop. That would be a mechanical grip of some sort or a Vanderval's force.
1: Yeah. But I again I think with a, with a supervillain like the lizard, it makes more sense that his his uh, climbing ability is is visibly destructive. Um Though it raises the question, like, where's the love for the gecko then in the creation of superheroes? I was looking around, looking at the various databases, and it looks like there are a couple of minor Marvel gecko characters, or maybe it's two versions of one character that have existed. And it looks like DC Comics also has a gecko or a the gecko. But I don't get the sense that these are based on anything, um, you know, true to the gecko. mm. But comic book fans out there, let let, let us know. Uh, perhaps you have more detail on these geckos.
0: Uh, who is Gordon Gecko? Is he some kind of gecko supervillain? <laughs>
1: uh, I don't know. Maybe it's a, the, it's part of the shared cinematic universe.
0: Okay, I think that's all we got for today.
1: All right, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up here. But yeah, write in. Let us know what you think about stickiness in general, uh, the examples of stickiness that we've discussed, and yes, even fictional, sticky comic book characters and so forth. Uh, Just a reminder that we're primarily a science podcast here at Stuff to Blow Your Mind with core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, listener mail on Mondays, a short-form monster fact or artifact episode on Wednesdays, and on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird film on Weird House Cinema.
0: Huge thanks to our excellent audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com.
2: Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Zumo Play.